0: When I interviewed Darnell Phillips in spring of 2019, um, it was actually a hard interview for me to do. This gentle giant of a man who had never been in trouble, uh, was studying to be a minister, was just starting his life as a teenage uh, young man, uh, was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to 107 years in prison. He was released Additional release even after he proved his innocence with DNA still restricted in his movements um, and yet he has not let any of this hold him back just this year he started his dream business a mobile auto detailing business called redemption auto detailing LLC redemption auto detailing get it? he's a minister it's incredible when I heard that name I almost fell on the floor Darnell is a pro at Taking people's beat-up-looking cars and making them look like brand new, therefore redemption auto detailing, and he has a he he has a sort of a joy about the way he goes about life, but also just the way that he approaches his job. And as a result, the business is growing and flourishing. It's in Virginia. Look him up. His Instagram is at darnphil19. That's d a r n p h i l nine the number nineteen. Follow Darnell and you will be inspired, because he is hitting it out of the park. He got engaged to a wonderful woman. What can you say about a guy who served almost three decades in prison of a hundred and something year sentence for a crime everybody knew he didn't commit? The victim came forward, everybody came forward, and yet spent not a minute of time feeling sorry for himself, and is living his best life. Uh, Darnell, if you're listening, you have all my respect, and for all you Wrongful Conviction listeners, I'm super excited for you to hear this episode.
1: This
2: call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. If I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly,
1: eleven thousand nine hundred and forty-five days. Okay, eleven thousand nine hundred and forty-five days I've been in here, you know? and um, it hasn't been easy. <laughs> 100 That's, man, I'm a hundred years? I said, man, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything, you know. And uh, you know, that was uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because my life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years. And I had dreams, and you know, I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because
0: they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And then once they act on
2: that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision, and they take off marching in the wrong direction, and that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They open it, the,
0: uh, the cell door and I walk downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside. It felt very strange um, to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. That's me, I'm your host. And today we have Darnell Phillips wrongfully imprisoned for 28 years and only released back on September 25th. Welcome. Glad Thank you're you. here. Thank you. I always say I'm sorry you're here, but I'm happy you're here. And with him, Lisa Spees is here, and she runs Virginians for Judicial Reform. And Lisa and I have been working closely together for a while now on some Virginia cases. So I'm glad you're here as well.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Darnell, your case is um, troubling in so many ways. Yes. The fact that you were ever prosecuted for this case doesn't make any sense and let's go back i mean this is a really brutal case it's a violent rape of a 10 year old girl yeah white girl and darnell is a larger than life black male and uh we know that cross-racial identifications are incredibly unreliable but let's not even go there yet Um, How did this ever come to pass in the first place? You didn't match the description. There's so much misconduct and so many mistakes, both I think deliberate and accidental in your case. But, But let's go back to where did this happen? How did this happen? How did you first get wrapped up in it at all?
1: In Virginia Beach in August 1990, I was in the process of trying to do something like you do with music. You know, I was a young guy, you know, you want to make money, you want to try to, you know, go after your dreams. It just so happened I met a young man from New York at the gym where he used to box at. And so I saw that he was interested in music. When I said, well, you know what, I have another friend who goes to Norfolk State, the DJ. We can get together. Maybe we can get this demo. We wanted to try to do it for this rap group called Public Enemy, in, you know, in the early 90s. And so one of the days that I was over uh, Michael's house, it was raining outside. When the rain began to settle down, we went back outside. We were laughing, just doing things, smoking a cigar, just talking futuristic things. You know, we had, man, I would love to you know, be a, a music producer. And, you know, he's talking about, yeah, I would love to rap. And so when we got not even 10 steps outside of his house, there was a guy walking by. And he asked, could I have a light? Gave him a light and everything. So we went walking around the corner. It just so happened. Police, they rolled up. And when they rolled up, we were like, Well, uh, what's going on, officer? He said, Well, the young girl had just been raped. We were like, Whoa, we said somebody just walked by us. We told them they went that way, back towards a place called Corporate Apartments. It was a military housing unit. And so he said, Well, will you be around? Because in case we need to talk to you, we said, Well, we're sure, but we really didn't say anything. About 15 minutes later, the officer came back through. He spoke with us. I was 18, Michael was 16. Spoke with Michael about, you know, where had he been? And, but Michael really didn't fit the description. So I was like, well, he's been with me, so there's no way in the world he could have been doing a type of crime. I had on all brown and black. They were looking for a man that had gray shorts on, white and green with the number 42 on the jersey. So, you know, obviously I didn't fit the description. I wasn't the person's height or anything, but nevertheless, they said, well, can you try this hat on? But I was like, well, I didn't want us to try a hat on or whatever, right? I had a hat, I guess, similar to the person who did the crime. It's like a Chicago Bulls hat. So Michael put the hat on. They snapped the picture. Then they asked me willingly. I said, yeah, sure. No problem. I put the hat on and they snapped the picture. Uh, The officer, he drove me home that night. That Friday, I was arrested. And when I was arrested, they didn't tell me what I was arrested for. And it took some hours, got down to the police station and spoke to a few uh, detectives, you know, for like four hours, probably then there was another detective came in you know unlike the other ones and i grew up around police officers you know they were kind to us Then they come through the neighborhood we would speak with them and when i spoke to the detective he automatically started just belittling me he called, kind of moved you uh uh you know you did the crime i'm like well what are you trying to, you're trying to damage my life man you know i like you're trying to hurt me what are you doing And so he just kept getting in my face and arguing at me and trying to get me to confess. He was trying to lead me on with questions. I was smart enough, even though I was 18 years old, I was smart enough to know that he was trying to pull me into a trap. I said, look, man, um," I said, I don't don't know what your situation is, but look, you you got the wrong man. I said, I have alibis and everything. Why? Why are you doing this? He just said, well, look, you told me something. I said, I didn't tell you anything. I said, well, I'm not going to sign anything. (laughs) I said, you know, I didn't know. I said, I'm not signing anything. He's like, well. He said, it doesn't make any difference. He said, who you think they're going to believe uh, me over you? He said, I'll take that young girl. He said, when I put them pigtails and they'll look at you like an animal. I said, "Why well, are you doing? So me, I put my head down because I said, I just want to go home, man, with my family, you know. And he told me, he said, well, you're never going home. And so that right there, it, it broke my heart. But nevertheless, I still didn't want to give him what he wanted. He wanted me to just outright tell him I did it. I said, man, I, I just can't do that, man. And after that, I was in jail. that was early Saturday morning. That Monday, I went to court. Next, you know, I'm here and I confessed and uh, I had brutally raped this girl and and so I'm I'm caught up like what? Because I had an alibi witness. I had a preacher's wife. She was in the house. Her son, a guy named uh, Michael Norfleet, and a host of other guys who saw me that day. That knew that I had on all brown and black. I hadn't been outside, and so. I was befuddled because the only move I made that day was to get to his house, stay in his house. And when we saw the police later on, that was it.
0: Well, Lisa, there were all these signs. I mean, they weren't just ignored. They were... I mean, his rights were trampled on, we know that, because I mean, when you get an officer actually lying about a confession, we know about false confessions. This wasn't even that. This was a non-confession that they then just made up a story. He told you he was going to do it and he did do it, right? Which is interesting too, because he actually told you up front, here's what I'm going to do to you. What would anybody feel in that situation other than, why are you doing this to me? I'm not that guy. Like, it's such a horrifying scenario. And especially, like you said, as you did, as, as I did, and I'm sure as Lisa did, we all grow up respecting authority figures, respecting the uniform. We know that they're there to serve and protect and uh, that they're the people you call if you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, they're the people that are trying to put you in trouble. So, Lisa, help me out here because this, this is a bad one.
2: Well, I don't know how much I can help you out with it. I mean, it reminds me of so many other cases that we've heard about, the Central Park Five and Jeff Deskovic and Andy Krivak, and I think the difference is that Darnell had the state of mind at the time that he just was not going to give a false confession, and clearly that officer knew that, and he didn't care, and he was going to say that he did it anyway, and that's, you know, the story that they continue to say that Darnell confessed, and that's what they've stuck to for 28 years, so even the recent court decision, it, it still continues to state that, you know, Darnell confessed, which we just know is, patently
0: false. Yeah, we're going to get to that later, because there's a whole long tail on the story, right? You know, he's still being persecuted by the state, even after having been proven innocent, and even after the victim coming forward repeatedly, and really begging the authorities to reverse this, and realizing that she had made a mistake. And we can get into that too, and how she was really coerced into implicating you. Obviously, when someone endures a traumatic experience, which hers can't be more traumatic than what this poor Mm -hmm. girl went through, uh, they're going to be prone to misidentifying someone or Mm -hmm. making mistakes, even if everybody does their job the way they're supposed to. That's not what happened here. But what they're probably not going to make a mistake on is identifying the color of the clothes. Right. Facial characteristics, Mm -hmm. height. Right. She's not sitting there with a, you know, a graph to be able to show how tall you are, how much you weigh. They could be off by 20, 30, 50 pounds even. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But they're not going to make a mistake on the color of the clothes. Not that big of a mistake. It's not like it was gray or, you know, light black or you know what I mean? Like you were wearing completely different clothes.
1: Brown and black paisley. Black pants, brown and black paisley shirt, Chicago Bulls hat person they were looking at had a white and green jersey with the numbers 42. Uh, she described that person as being a little older, out of shape at the time. I used to run every morning. So I was like 170 pounds. I used to train with my cousin, you know, uh, go boxing and everything. So, you know, I, I was slim and trim, you know. <laughs> and the sad part about it was that that same brown and black garment, they paraded it around in court as if that was a white and green shirt, as if that implicated me with guilt. And I'm like, are they seeing this? The jury, I'm like, are you seeing this? This is a brown and black shirt. They look so someone with white and green.
0: This is not like that thing that went around on the internet a while ago, where it was is the dress uh, gold or is it blue, right? And it was this whole. This is not that. This no. is cut and dried. Anybody with eyes can tell the difference between those colors. It's not tricky. But speaking of tricky, I mean, the only word I can think of for it is disgusting on a number of levels, which is what they did to influence this young girl to implicate you. Right? They were willing to go to extreme lengths to, let's just call it, get this case off their desk. Lisa, can you talk about some of the things that they did to influence this young girl who was so impressionable at this point and so damaged and so upset?
2: So the victim in this case was a 10-year-old female who had been brutally sexually assaulted. She could not identify anyone when they came to speak with her. And they influenced her by telling her that Darnell had, in fact, confessed, but that they couldn't use the confession against him. They told her that her blood was found on Darnell's underwear. They told her that Darnell had committed similar crimes and been in trouble in the past all of which were absolutely false and they told her this to influence her to give an identification of Darnell to maintain the charge but and also to get a conviction in a trial yeah I mean disgusting I don't even think begins to cover doing that to someone because not only are you doing this to Darnell who they knew was innocent it's not a mistake it's not an innocent mistake in this case they knew he was innocent And it's not just leaving a predator on the street who's most likely going to commit another crime like this, but you're also committing a fraud on a 10-year-old victim who was sexually assaulted and her family who all had to go through that. And then 28 years later, she finds out that it's all been a lie. And think about what kind of wrapping your mind around that would do to you after going through that kind of an experience as a child and now having to wrap your mind around that you know, you are part of this fraud as well. I mean, unknowingly, didn't do anything wrong on her own. She was told this, and and of course, we all believe the police. When you're 10 and you go through something like that, all of us would believe that.
0: And when it comes to the girl, I was getting the chills while you were talking because I was thinking, who's to say that this guy who's still out on the streets wasn't going to go back and rape her again, right? Mm. She was in danger, and look, maybe they couldn't have caught him anyway. Maybe he had disappeared into thin air or gone to Canada or who knows, right? But... If he was around, there was a way to find him. I mean, this is Virginia Beach, too. This is not a tiny little town. They have, you know, resources, right? Mm-hmm. They have trained professionals that could have gone and done the, the hard work to go find this guy.
2: Well, the tourism industry in Virginia Beach is very strong, as well as the military community. And I think for both of those things, you know, you would want to find the actual perpetrator rather than just lock somebody up. And well, like you said, get the, get the file off their desk.
0: And give the public the false impression that everything's safe now and you can go out and and do your thing. When in fact, they should have been telling people to keep a careful eye on their kids while we're continuing this investigation. Don't let them go anywhere by themselves. I'm sure kids were just right back to riding their bikes and doing whatever they did in Virginia Beach back then, uh, 28 years ago. Mm. Darnell, let's talk about the trial. There you are with alibi witnesses, credible alibi witnesses. As you said, the preacher's daughter, and this and that, and like your friends, and you had an almost airtight case. How long were you in jail awaiting trial?
1: I stayed in jail for like five months and um, I made bond. Here's how far the injustice goes, Jason. When I was in jail, my lawyer told me, he said, Darnell, look, you don't have a record and there are certain things in this case that he said don't line up. He said, but they have to give you a record. I said, give me a record, like what? He said, they're gonna open a book up on you, they're gonna give you a robbery charge. I said, a robbery charge? So they had gave me, it was two cases, but because this rape charge was so heavy they gave me a robbery charge when I had witnesses I was at work. I couldn't have been there, right? I didn't drive at the time, Jason. So So mm-hmm. they
0: invented a prior robbery just so yeah, they could just so, to so, give
1: me a criminal record.
0: So they had an open robbery case. Yeah. And they just decided He told were, me they were
1: gonna dump it and they and they gave a description of the man at the time, you know, when I saw the guy on the photos I saw, it was like he was like a larger lighter skin guy. He had bald head at the time. In my ID picture I had full head of hair. You know, this summertime, I was, you know, uh, dark brown.
0: So they had like a surveillance photo of the guy or something yeah,
1: like that? Yeah, but the guy had an earring in his ear. He, now, here's the thing about it. I had an earring in my ear when I was 14. It became infected because my brother friend did it. But by the time trial came along four years later, they, the victim had said the guy had an earring. But a plastic surgeon came and told him that there's no way in the world his ear could have been open at that time. He says, this is a fully healed ear. He said, it's no way in the world possible. And so I didn't look like the guy. I had alibi witnesses. So they'd give me another false charge. But the other case, I was facing three life sentences in 30 years. So really, I wasn't thinking about that too much, right? And so they were just pretty much dumping everything on me. So when I got out on bond, man, uh, I was a very fearful person because my outlook on the police officers, they weren't the same anymore.
0: It's a good thing they caught the guy that killed Abe Lincoln. They might have tried to pin that on you too. You know what I mean? They would have like, "Yeah, you know, what? we got an open case around. here. That was this guy. Were you in the theater back in 1860, whatever?" And you'd be like, "No." They go, "Yeah, this guy. This is the guy right here." You know what I mean? We can laugh about it now. Well, you're laughing about it, but like, it's actually it's preposterous. So
1: back to the trial. So I got out on uh, bond November the 5th, 1990. I went to trial in, in June 1990. I saw my first day. My my lawyer told me to go to the back of the courtroom. I was like, Well, why are you tell me to go to the back of the courtroom for? They saw the prosecutor walking the victim down the aisle and they stopped on my aisle. And she didn't she didn't point me out, but what she did, she stopped by my aisle and I'm like, What in the world is going on? But later on we found out that they coached her. She said that they coached her that, look, he's going to be sitting at that table. This is what he got on. Don't change the story. So she was coached not only by police officers, was coached by prosecutors. Came time for trial. To, you know, the victim pointed me out from that. I found that out maybe like a year ago. You know what I mean? <laughs> so keep in mind, 27 years passed. I'm finding this out. I'm like, that's what's going on. Because I was often puzzled, why did they just stop her? where the row I was at. And so I said, that's why the prosecutors did that.
0: Were there any rumors around, uh, because you were out for this period of time before the trial, were there rumors around the neighborhood about somebody else that might have done it?
1: Yeah. The name was mentioned by uh, one of the victim's family friends as well as, uh, I believe, the victim's father about some man named Omar. Because one of the victim's friends, she said that when she was walking on the path and saw the girl with the bike, She said she also saw a guy with a black hat, very popular Michael, like a bull's hat at the time. You know, he was twirling in his hands, and she said he had on similar type clothing, you know, like white and green and stuff. She said, well, he was twirling the hat, and then when she looked, he just took off running. And she said, oh, they look just like Omar. In court, when I heard that, I said, okay, well, evidently, maybe, you know, they'll find this Omar guy. So I'll be in the clear. But they never really look for Omar (laughs) you know so they weren't really interested in Omar no they weren't interested in Omar they were interested in Darnell
2: (laughs) but at that point and also it's important to remember that not only was there misconduct by the police in Darnell's original questioning but there was continued misconduct by pointing Darnell out to the victim in the courtroom and coaching her and telling her these false things about Darnell from the first place. So really from the start, throughout the trial with the prosecutors, there was continued shenanigans to nail it on him. And I don't really think they were interested in anybody else.
0: Clearly they weren't interested but in anybody But they clearly else. knew
2: that he didn't do it too. Because if, if he did it, you don't have to go about it this way.
0: That's true. I mean, we do have obviously cases of tunnel vision where you have prosecutors and police who believe that they have the right guy. And then they just sort of, you know, they get into this sort of vortex where they shape and shift the narrative in order to fit what they believe to be true. And that's a thing that happens. This doesn't seem like that was the case at all. They knew you didn't confess. They knew you weren't wearing the right clothes. They knew you had an alibi. They knew you had never been in trouble. There was not one little thing that would have indicated to anybody that it was actually you. So this cannot be swept under the rug and, and called a you know a mistake in a, in a case of tunnel vision because that's clearly not what it was. I mean, what this was was a lynching, for lack of a better word. And so you go to trial. How long did the trial last? Three-day trial. Did you testify? Yes, I did. And what was that like?
1: Well, to me, uh, 18, you know, you don't have the same verbiage as, you know, a prosecutor, you know. And so— even though you can stand your grounds, you really can't protect yourself because you don't know any of the legal terminology. Trick, and yeah. so every time you, you're trying to say no, I, I was here with my friend. Well, this and that, and, and it didn't trick me up. I just couldn't express myself as well as I can now because, you know, the 18-year-old Darnell and the 47-year-old Darnell, there's a, there's a large difference, you know. And so to me, it was horrifying because I'm like, <laughs> can't they can't they see what's going on? I mean, they're about to take my life. I said, they're not considering this. And I'm looking at the prosecutors and they were dead set on me going to prison for the rest of my life. I'm looking at the police officer. I'm like, I'm I'm looking at them fabricating a story because I know I was in the house that day. And so I couldn't have been out raping someone. I was trying to tell them this what I was watching on TV. If you go back and look at this on TV, you'll see I'm correct. There's no way I know where I could have been on the crime scene if I'm watching TV. I was trying to tell them about my friend's mother. She had told them, but they would not let her testify in court because at that moment, she had brain cancer. And the months that I was out, she began to lose her sight. But she said she still (laughs) remembered that man did not have on white and green. That man had on all brown and black. And he was right here on this couch with me. So they never let her testify. That day, to me, it, it was horrible. You know, I didn't have a juror of my peers. You know, I think the closest I they came to a jury. of My peers was a person that was, she's probably about 28. I don't know whether she was Chinese. I don't, I don't know what she was, but.
0: No black people on the jury? Nah. Oh, boy. You know, and it's, so. It, you know, I had lunch the other day with a friend of mine who's uh, doing great things in criminal justice mm. reform. And, and she was telling me before she became this performer, you know, now I don't think anybody would put her on a jury. But she was on the jury. And she said she was on this case. And uh, it was a serious criminal case. And she said the third day of deliberations, the jurors started saying, you know what, I really don't care anymore whether the guy's guilty or not, I'm going home. Like, I've had it. Like, I can't, I got things to do. I can't be bothered with this anymore. Like, people were just breaking down. All right, guilty. You know what I mean? Like, people were just caving. And I'm making that point because I don't know what went on in your jury room, but after three days... You know, you could kind of understand how jurors could become so stressed out and everybody wants to go home. But I think when you're listening to Darnell and you hear the pain and you know that he's just one of of millions that have gone through this, so many of whom are innocent. You know, I'm just asking people to keep that in mind when you're in that jury room and it's an inconvenience. You know what, we gotta work together to prevent these things from happening. And it's not gonna happen if people are gonna be susceptible to their own personal needs at a time when they hold somebody's life in their hands, as it was in your case. Because I gotta believe that there were jurors in that room that were sitting there going, wait a minute though, the color, the thing didn't match, the description, the this, the that, I mean, You know, because there was no forensic evidence. I mean, they made up a story about a hair, right? One hair on a blanket, right? That was another thing,
1: right? They said the man, he's 80-something now, but he told them, well, you know, that was what they call junk science. But at the time, he said that it had like 14 particulars that kind of, they were similar to mine, but when they tested it (laughs) in 2001, it shows it wasn't mine at all. As a matter of fact, whoever it was, their mother had... Some Caucasian, it was a mine. The man from the Department of Defense, they tested it.
0: Yeah, so there was junk science involved yeah. on top of all the other stuff. Because yeah. that was the only physical evidence, was one hair on a blanket that was found with the girl, near the girl, which, of course, now we know wasn't your hair anyway. So if they needed another story to make up, there there it was. And how long did the jury deliberate?
1: Deliberated like, three days. On the third day of the trial, about 8 o'clock at night, they rendered the decision. When they told me, you know, guilty, I'm like guilty. I, I'm, I know what guilty means, but I'm thinking they made a mistake because how could you incarcerate somebody who's innocent? And so I'm thinking that maybe I didn't hear this right. And they were reading off the jurors, you know, uh, suggestions and, you know, I'm looking at my lawyer. I'm saying, so am I going home tonight? And he looks at me, he said, he said, no, I'm like, what's going on? You know, he's like, man, he said, you're going to prison, man. I said, I'm going to prison. Man I told them I was facing 107 years. Oh. What they did, they gave me 100 years, right? And then with that robbery, they gave me a seven-year sentence. Yeah, 100, 100 years at the time, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> 100 years? I said, man, I'm a, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything. That was real painful, man. You know, because my life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something, you know? You know, 100 years, I had dreams and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. I just wanted to help people with my life. And here they are. They want to take my life.
0: Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule, at your own pace, and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com/wrongful. That's betterhelp.com/wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. betterhelp.com/wrongful. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery, complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up, just like a game-winning play on the field, and almost got away with it. The Sneak follows a twisting story of a once-great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. So, there you go to prison, you're stuck there for decades. And as you said, you were a young man with dreams and hopes like anybody would be at 18. How did you manage to never lose hope in this
1: situation? You know, I was a person, you know, I had just came into my faith, and I said, you know, regardless of how long I have to stay there, I said, I'm not going to allow that place to cause me to succumb to its environment. The court system had already failed me, so, and I just believed that one day the truth will come out, you know. That's just something that was a a conviction in me. Outside of that, the only thing that got me through my faith, man, I'm going to be honest with you, right? You know, reading the Bible and studying and praying and because I wanted to go into ministry. So I studied for that because I wanted to help people. And so I said, well, if I can't help people on the outside, I can help people on the inside. And so that's what I started doing, teaching and preaching and, and writing. You know, I said, wrote uh, several manuscripts for books. Just teaching myself a lot of things, man. Studying business. I studied law because I did some of the pro se on my own case before. I worked. You know, I, I did everything I, I could, man, to keep my head above waters, man. But mostly, I would say my faith, man, and helping people, man. I, I found relief in helping others, you know, because everything else, man, it, it had failed me.
0: So ultimately, we know. Now that you're here, this is the good part of the story. Yes, how did you first get in touch with the Virginia Innocence Project? What did that mean to you when they agreed to represent you? And then how did things develop from
1: there? Well, I was a teacher's aide at Southampton Correctional Center for several years. And I had a boss there that he sent something to uh, the New York Innocence Project because he said my behavior was kind of strange. He said I kind of stood out for the other inmates. And he said, You don't belong here. He said, Something wrong with that. so I broke down and I told him the story. And he said, Darnell, he said, I put something into the New York Innocence Project. He said, I don't know whether or not they got it. He said, But I put it in. And so several years later, I was at Green Rock Correctional Center. I think New York had sent me back some paperwork, said that they were opening up a Virginia chapter of the Innocence Project. And so uh, one of the students came and visited me. This was right after my father had died in 2009. You know, they visited me and told me, he said, man, I don't know whether or not I'll be able to help you before I leave. He said, but I'm going to give it my best shot, try to get you out of there before I graduate. I said, that's, that's cool. So I met that one student. He graduated. I hadn't heard anything for, you know, several years. And so finally, my older sister, one morning, she said, you know what, I have to do something. So she drove up. She had never been to Charlottesville. She drove up to Charlottesville, and she had my paperwork. When she went there, she didn't know whether or not the university was open or what, but she asked uh, when would the—that was Deirdre Enright—when she when, when be there. So she brought in, you know, the boxes and everything, and ultimately, and this is project, they really started looking more intent. One thing that touched me, I'm going to tell you what touched me. Jennifer Gibbons had told me, she said, you know, Darnell, uh, even if we don't find DNA, you because know, they were looking for DNA, they said they couldn't find any DNA because the prosecutor said it had been destroyed in 2005. So she said, you know, we're going to fight this even if we don't find DNA. I finally felt like I was being heard. I went through so many decades without being heard, and now finally, I didn't know how to take it. Someone talking to you like a human. They give them the time and the energy. When they talked to me, they were very kind. And so I'm like, man, I said, I'm I'm actually going to get some help now. I had been praying about this for years. I said, man, I'm really going to get some help. Like I said, I I have to give it up to the Innocent Project. You know, they were more than lawyers. They were like family to me.
0: Well, they They were were lawyers. They were family. They were also private investigators. They were doing.
1: Yes, they do. They started looking around, combing around for evidence. And in 2016, they had found some evidence, you know, and I'm like, OK, now let's see what this DNA is going to show up and clear me. You know, I had no problem testing because I know I didn't do anything. So they went, tried to get it tested, the clothing, because some of the other stuff had been destroyed uh, deliberately, in my opinion. They tested it. They said that Virginia couldn't find anything. So they went to an external lab. In that lab in California, they found some DNA. And
0: and let's not skip over too quickly the fact that as if they hadn't done enough, they also lied to you about the existence of the evidence, right? They covered it up.
2: For a decade.
0: For a decade, they said there's no evidence, but there was evidence. And we've seen this again and again in Alan Newton's case. Kirk Bloodsworth's case, so many cases where they, they say the evidence is not here, but it's here. Somebody just has to go look for it, but they just keep moving the goalposts and trying to hope that the maybe they're trying to get the lawyers to give up. I, I mean, every time I try to figure it out or understand it, I, I just I don't understand why they... Why would anybody not want to get to the truth, except for they want to protect somebody's reputation, and this goes on, and it's still going on to this day in your case, which, you know, hopefully it will get resolved, because... We know now that you're out, but you're still not even really free. So that's another thing that has to get addressed. And we're going to get to that part of the story. So they found the DNA. They got it tested in California. Mm-hmm. How did you find out that the results came back that showed that you weren't the guy?
1: I was on the ball part because this was like the third go-round because as Virginia tested it, they couldn't find anything. But the guy in California, he said he tested right where they were testing, and he found it. <laughs> I'm like... How does that, how does that work? Because Virginia's, they're very flawed. They're very behind on technology when it comes to DNA. But yet when you present it to the courtrooms, they don't want to receive it because it's not from Virginia. But yet Virginia, they have a very flawed forensic science uh, laboratory. You know, I have to say that because if it wasn't, you know, I wouldn't be here years later. So I was outside on the yard. Uh, An officer told me, look, um, someone wants to talk to you. So I I called my lawyer. So when I Talked to him, Deirdre right asked me, she said, Darnell, you, you sitting down? I said, well, what is it, Deirdre? She said, are, are you sitting down? I'm like, I said, yeah, yeah. She said, "A man called from the laboratory in California. He said it wasn't yours. And they said, now here's something that people get confused about. Whoever was in the DNA had three markers similar to mine. Scientifically, one in 10 African-American men have three markers of the same. But then when you get to the rest of the markers, it shows, oh, this is a totally different person. One in 23 individuals have the same three markers. And so the man told them that when you look on the outside, he said, you see the person had similar markers, three. But when you get to the rest of them, to which they didn't want to test, he said, it shows you it's not Darnell. He said, it's not him. It's not him. So these labs outside of Virginia, they saw the truth. But when we brought it back over to side, they didn't want to process it because they didn't do it. So go figure, (laughs) go figure, man. (laughs) I
0: I didn't know that science uh, only worked inside of state lines. You know, science is science.
1: Unfortunately, you know, uh, no one really pushed that law yet, you know, pushed it through, man. But, you know, you have a lot of innocent guys being overlooked. They have proof, but because sometimes the labs didn't come through Virginia, the testing didn't come through Virginia, they just can't get anything done. And some of these guys I talked to Saturday, I said, it's beautiful you call me because I'm going to New York. I said, man, you know, I, I can never forget you, and I'm not going to forget you, you know. I said, I wish I was totally clear, man. I can really do some things to help you, you know. But like I say, you know, unfortunately, I'm not in that position yet. But
0: um, Which is an interesting thing because you were paroled without admitting guilt which almost never happens. And I know the audience is probably thinking, wait a minute, but now the DNA wouldn't the case just be overturned and thrown out. But they still fought that, and you had to go out sort of through the, almost through the back door, so to speak, right, by getting paroled, but still being forced to register and, you know, be punished again on the outside because, in your case, Virginia just doesn't want to admit that they're wrong. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker... Has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people, what do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing the glasses, you're not going to believe this, they start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses... And you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone. And then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try on. And now... Introducing Scout by Warby Parker And Scout is for you people For everyone that wears contact lenses And here's the thing They're comfortable They're breathable And they're affordable They're daily contact lenses They're made from a super moist material That resists drying For lasting hydration and comfort It's everything you want From a contact lens Order a trial pack That includes six days worth of contacts For only five dollars Unreal And then receive five dollars Off your next Warby Parker order Learn more Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. What we were talking about before, which is so profound, is the victim herself, right? Who's now a grown woman. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is 28 years ago, so she's 38, 39 years old. Mm -hmm. And talk about what her advocacy for you has meant and how they have prevented her. Like, she wanted to actually come and greet you and hug you and apologize or whatever it was that was on her mind as you were coming out the prison gates. And they wouldn't even allow her to do that.
1: She had requested it because she was the one who went and testified on my behalf, you know. Once my lawyers, of course, I've never spoken to her outside of that at all, but my lawyers, when they talked to her. She's like, well, look, you know, I want to do whatever I can to help get Darnell exonerated. She went to the parole board herself. So she, she asked my lawyers, she said, well, you know, can I go and see Darnell? Or they're like, well, you know, can't do that because, you know, like I said, the, the system, you know, she still want to meet me to this day. I can't meet her. I don't know, man. I appreciate her because, you know, she could have kept it in her mind. She could have went to a grave with it, but she was, she was a bold woman. I, to me, that was a profound because she's done more than a lot of times than many of the legal people have done for me. You know, because she came forth with the truth. She filled in a lot of blanks that I didn't know, my lawyers didn't know, as to why things were going on, you know, like an undercurrent. and She filled them blanks in. So for that, I'll ever be grateful to her.
0: And so you walked out of prison mm-hmm. after 28 years.
1: Well, I was ecstatic then, Jason, because, one, <laughs> you know you're you're an ambitious man. Lisa, you're a very ambitious woman. You know, you had an opportunity to, to work in your passions. Well, me— even though a lot of times I worked in my passion in prison, now I'm like, I can finally come out and do this. Because those fires never died in me. And so I'm like, man, I'm going to be able to do this now. That's, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to feel like I, what my purpose was. That was going to go into ministry, to get in the business, to marry my fiance, who had been with me for 18 years, fighting alongside me. I'm like, man, I'm going to be able to get married. Now I'm going to be able to go into ministry. I'm going to be able to start a business. I'm going to be able to be around my mother and to close that chapter of my life, so to speak. What
0: is it like now? Like, how's your day-to-day? You've been out for four months?
1: Mm -hmm. Now, when people do recognize me, they're very empathetic, you know, sympathetic towards me. But when it comes time to work now, like keep in mind, like I said, I'm 47 years old, man. Pretty much have to start like a person who's 16 years old. (laughs) The jobs I go for, I go for like sales jobs or I go for any other type of job, you know, broke it down to warehouse or whatever. I just wanted some employment. Sometimes, even though they're not supposed to discriminate, and even though they believe you, and even though they tell me, yeah, I recognize your case, but one of the jobs I had went to, the man said, you know, he said, man, you have to be cleared. When I do the background check, he said, you have to be cleared for this job. He said, I understand your situation, but you have to be cleared. And so that, I couldn't get the job. Personally, I understood because I know that he has to represent his business, but In my heart and mind, I'm like, man, I'm still paying for something I didn't do. So I have to depend on other people for money when that is not my nature at all. All I want to do is be able to provide for myself, get married, you know, get a vehicle. I have to depend on people for rides because I can't even get a cheap vehicle. And so even though I'm glad to be out, you know, I'm I'm grateful, but I still have to suffer day to day. I want to start my own business, I want to start all auto detailing business, but if I could work, I could get the little money that it costs, a little, $6,000, that shouldn't be a struggle, but (laughs) you can't work, so you can't get the money. And so, I'm not a criminal, so I'm not going to commit crimes, I'm I'm not going to sell drugs, I'm not going to rob, that's not my nature. The only thing I can do, man, is pray, man, look for opportunities to come, man.
0: People that are listening, maybe they live in or know about opportunities in, in the area, Virginia Beach area. How would they uh, contact you? Do you have a a website or email address or something like that you want to share?
1: I have an email, uh, D-A-R-N-P-H-I-L-19 at yahoo.com.
0: Darn Phil, D-A-R-N-P-H-I-L-19, the number 19, Mm -hmm. at yahoo.com if people want to reach out to you for speaking gigs maybe or anything else like that.
2: We actually set up a GoFundMe to try to give him more opportunities now, you know, in the meantime of being fully exonerated.
0: How do people access the GoFundMe?
2: So they can Google Darnell Phillips GoFundMe or they can go to the website V4JR.org. And there's a link on our website to the GoFundMe account, V, as in Victor, the number 4 Jr. org, Or they can look us up, Virginians for Judicial Reform on Facebook. And there are links to it on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well.
0: So before we wrap up, my question for you is, mm-hmm. are you bitter?
1: No. I'm going to be honest with you, Jason, that, that would sound crazy. But when I said that, I would let that place I wouldn't let this situation change me I meant that I vowed that to myself and I vowed to God I said I would not allow that to change me because it will make me like them you know and I'm not talking about inmates (laughs) it will make me like the wickedness that people perform to get me in there you know so I'm not bitter I did not like what happened to me but I'm not bitter because the people I met the experiences I went through Outside of the legal system now, the individuals I met, it opened my eyes up to, you know, that their cause is bigger than myself. And my only thing is, how do I get involved to help them? You know, because it's all about helping people. It's all about helping people get to the next level in their life, you know. And you have to live your life or cause outside of yourself, you know. Like like you, you know, you, you're a great producer. But... You find the time to help guys in situations like mine. <laughs> you know what I mean? there's are two different things, but nevertheless, that's a passion of yours, you know what I mean? That's a godsend for guys like me, man. You don't really know how how strongly you know you affect us, man. You really affect us to a degree, man, to our core, because you actually hear guys, you actually take the time out. I remember when I called you on the phone. I was shocked. I thought I was going to get a secretary or something. I said, this guy answered his phone. (laughs) I mean, for real. I said, this guy answered his phone. I said, this guy cared for real. And so you don't find many people like you, man. So I would just say, man, continue what you're doing, man. You know, and and, and prayerfully one day, man, I'll be able to help people just like
0: that. You definitely will. And, you know, for me, it's a, a duty, but also a privilege to be able to be around people like yourself who have been to hell and back and come out with a smile on your face and a bounce in your step it's an unbelievable thing I mean it's really a selfish thing that I do you know because it makes my life better you know knowing you people like Lisa that are involved in the fight uh, the other exonerees they're really the finest people that I've had the chance to come across uh, most of them are exonerees it's mm. crazy so I don't I don't really understand it but it is what it is so um, this is the part of the show, which is my favorite part of the show, because this is the part of the show where I get to stop talking <laughs> and listen. And, uh, you know, first of all, I want to thank both of you for coming. It's been an honor for me to tape this show with you. So thanks again, Darnell Phillips, for coming in and sharing your thoughts. bye and Lisa Spees. Keep fighting the good fight. Um, you know, we'll keep working together and the wins are few and far between and the frustrations are a lot, but we just keep fighting. So,
2: But the wins are worth it.
0: That's right. So now I'm going to turn it over to you just for some brief final thoughts. Um, Lisa, you can go first because we're going to save the best for last.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I think Darnell's case is just kind of interesting to me because I learned about him from another wrongfully convicted person that's still in prison. And when I would email with Darnell, his emails to me while he was still in prison were so like uplifting and it just was like a breath of fresh air into my day. So seeing him be on the outside and meeting him in person mm-hmm. today was an incredible experience. We have some real problems with the criminal justice system in Virginia. Um, We don't have parole, juries recommend sentences. The way our writ of actual innocence is designed is, you know, to kind of circumvent actual justice. Ignoring DNA evidence because it didn't come from a Virginia lab is wrong. And so, you know, we would love for more people to get involved, and I know Darnell wants to get involved in trying to change the system there to uh, truly seek out justice for all of us and make it better. So thanks for having me.
1: What I would like to say, I would like to speak to those who are presently incarcerated, you know, if they can hear me, that there is always hope, you know, never give up, you know, never uh, let go your dream of being released from prison, especially for the false incarcerated. Know that there are groups and people who will hear you, can hear you and can feel what you're feeling. From one innocent man to another, I said, man, keep your faith. Don't give up, this is 28 years later. As long as we have good people like the Innocence Project, Jason Flom, Lisa Spees, these people out here to help us. So don't give up, you know. Sometimes it's easy, you know, to stop writing people, to just succumb to the system. You know, figuring, you know, you're losing hope and figuring that, hey, look, no one wants to hear, no one wants to uh, get involved in my situation. Don't fall prey to the lie. Reach out, there's someone who will help you. Thank you
0: for listening to Wrongful Conviction, and uh, tune in next week. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org. That's innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall, Jenna Ruggiero, and Kevin Wardus. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction. That's at Wrongful Conviction. And on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company No. 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Kristoff recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Kristoff seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.